This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally, or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, accurately handling the Word of Truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible Line. If you are a first-time listener here at 88.7 FM, uh, we take questions during this hour. Maybe it's a challenge you're facing in your personal life and ministry, and you want biblical counsel as it relates to that or your family, or many times people are just studying a text of Scripture and they're trying to understand its uh, original intention to the original audience so they can make proper application. And again, as you just heard, you can reach us a number of different ways. You can email us here directly into the studio, and the email address is tbl for the Bible line, tbl at net, or the South Carolina 843 Exchange is 525-1859. We always do give preference to live callers, so you can contact us that way. Uh, some don't want to go on the air. They just want to dictate their question. We're happy to receive it however you want. So we're already getting calls, so we're going to go ahead and jump right in. Let's go ahead and get started, Rick. All right, Pastor. Yes, we do have a live caller standing by. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning. I have a couple of questions on, uh, related to time. After Peter's sermon in Acts 2, uh, about 3,000 people are, are saved. Yes. I'm confused as to how long was that after the crucifixion of Christ and also... In Acts 8, uh, verse 1, so all were scattered about after the after the uh, stoning of, of Stephen. Of course, all were scattered about except the apostles. I, I'm confused as to how long that was after the crucifixion and why the apostles hadn't left. Okay, uh, thank yeah. Thank you. I'll be hanging up and listening. Yeah, great, great, great question. So let's put some time frames here. Christ, of course, died on Friday. Uh, on Passover, not accidentally, and he was raised from the dead on Sunday, which was the Feast of First Fruits. And uh, the Feast of First Fruits was a uh, one of uh, the Old Testament, uh, one of seven Old Testament festivals that God had, and uh, that there were four in the spring and three in the fall, and they were all symbolic of the work that the Messiah would do at his first coming, and some concerning his first and second coming. The four fall feasts have been fulfilled in Christ's coming. Uh, the uh, three, uh, the, excuse me, the four spring feasts have been fulfilled. The three fall feasts are yet to be fulfilled, but they will unfold during the time of the Great Tribulation and culminating with the millennial reign. So um, think about this for just a moment. Uh, the Feast of Weeks, which was 49 days, in the 50th day uh, being Pentecost, or Shavuot in uh, Hebrew, so the Jews still celebrate Shavuot. Uh, we 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 differ with them, obviously, in that unless they're a completed Jew, we see that Shavuot was fulfilled in the coming of the Holy Spirit. This was the promise of the new covenant. 
So if you remember, Jesus died on Friday, raised on Sunday. Acts 1 tells us that he walked on the earth for 40 days. For 40 days, Acts chapter 1, showing many convincing proofs to people that he was indeed the one whom the scriptures wrote of. And then uh, he ascended into heaven on the 40th day. He told the disciples they were not to leave uh, Jerusalem, but they were to wait and remain for the coming of the Holy Spirit. And so 10 days later, on the 50th day of um the Feast of Weeks, uh, just as uh, illustrated and foreshadowed in the Old Testament, God the Holy Spirit came. When he came, there was 120 people, men and women alike, in an upper room. Uh, his coming was accompanied with an incredibly loud noise. It didn't say there was a violent rushing wind, but it was like a violent rushing wind. So it was miraculous. There was no wind, but there was the noise of a violent rushing wind. Why was that important? Because this was the capstone of uh, this feast that God had prescribed. There were three feasts in the Old Testament that if you were a pious Jew, you couldn't ignore. And if you lived in Israel, you came from wherever you lived in Israel. If you didn't live in Israel, then you came from another country, but you came. And so God said in Deuteronomy 16, 16, three times in a year, your males shall appear before the Lord, your God, in the place which he chooses. What's the place he chooses? Obviously, the Temple Mount, the city of Jerusalem, at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, at the Feast of Weeks, and at the Feast of Booths. So uh, some were in the spring, and of course, the Feast of Booths was in the fall. So these were three required festivals. And so the uh, the height the, the, of the, the Feast of Weeks was the 50th day. What, what did that mean? It meant the city was going to be packed with pilgrims. It's, it was really an incredible feast. We could spend the whole hour on it just describing it. But uh, the city would, would bulge from 100,000 to anywhere from 1 to 2 million people. And so when they heard this noise, like, what's that? Can you imagine, like, uh, in the first century, the engines of a 787 jet cranking up? wow, there's something going on, and you're drawn to that spot. Out come the 120. Uh, This is incredible. These are Galileans. They're speaking in 15 different languages. It's miraculous. Some are mockers. They say they're drunk. Peter said, you're not even thinking logically. People don't get drunk at 9 a.m. in the morning. Uh, He stood up, preached the gospel. 3,000 men were saved, uh, excluding, of course, women and children. So they counted heads of households. So when did that happen? It happened 50 days after the resurrection. Uh, go back a couple days, and uh, you have basically 52 days after the crucifixion. Now, when you look at the book of Acts, there's an outline. It's one of those books in the New Testament where God contains the outline within the book. And so in Acts 1 and verse 8, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. So that's really the outline of the book of Acts. In Acts 1 through 7, you have their testimony and witness in the city of Jerusalem. And by the way, Luke is a premier historian. He wrote two books in the Bible. He wrote the gospel according to Luke, and he recorded the Acts of the Apostles. And so in one sense, he gave us more of the New Testament than any other single gospel writer. 
some debate whether he was a Gentile. I, I really think he was a Jewish man, but like with many Jews, also had a Greek name. In either case, um, he was a premier historian. Uh, even skeptics and even those who are critical of the Bible cannot discount the preciseness with which this particular man wrote. And as you read through the book of Acts, there are certain little chronological clues that tell you how far into the Acts you are. Now, I've uh, preached, um, I don't know, 50-some sermons on the book of Acts, so I would direct you uh, to that sermon series. If you really want to learn Acts, how it falls chronologically, what epistles were written at what point, um, it will really make much of the New Testament come alive. I think there are two critical books that you really want to get a handle on in trying to understand the whole of Scripture. One is Genesis, Barashit, it means beginnings, genosios in, in the Septuagint, and comes into English as Genesis. It's the book of beginnings. And in kernel form, you have all of the major uh, doctrines of the faith, uh, how we are, where we are today, and what God's future plans are. Uh, a parallel book would be the book of Acts, and so they're both very, very important. So as you look at the chronological clues, uh, which I could spend the next hour on, so I'm just going to direct you to the series. Acts 1 through 7, it's their witness in Jerusalem. It covers two years. Then, of course, uh, Stephen stands up in Acts 7, preaches an incredible sermon. I tell people, if you want to get a grasp on the Old Testament and what it's about, read Acts 7 and look up all the passages that Stephen references. What a command of Scripture this man had. Of course, he was speaking filled with the Spirit, but the Spirit of God could only use that which he had studied. And he had obviously immersed himself in the Old Testament Scriptures, and he can get up and give you an overview of the entire Old Testament. So if you're trying to get the big picture of the Old Testament, study Acts 7. And Again, I've preached all the way through that and walked people uh, through the logistics of this sermon. Um, they get so upset, they grind their teeth, they resist the Holy Spirit, they stone him to death. Of course, Saul of Tarsus is present, and so the second part of Acts begins in chapter 8. So 8.1 is kind of a hinge verse, bringing you into a new section of the book of Acts, because it says Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him, that is Stephen, to death, and on that day, the day he died, a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. So now the book of Acts 1, verse 8, your witnesses in Jerusalem, next in Judea and Samaria. That's Acts 8 through 12. Again, you read through those chapters carefully. There's little chronological clues that Dr. Luke drops, and it covers a period of 13 years. So it's about two years into the church when Acts takes place, Acts 8, 1. Then, of course, you'll be my witnesses to the remotest part of the earth, and so beginning in Acts 13, you have the three missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul and his two imprisonments. Again, chronological notations given all the way through. It covers 15 more years. So the book of Acts covers a span of 30 years. Anyway, good question. Let's go to the next one. 843-525-1859. If you have a question for today's Bible line, Janae from Clemson, South Carolina, writes, I'm a college student at Clemson University and I have a few questions. The first ones are from my English class where we read Genesis, John, and this week, Romans 1. 
The instructor believes God is a divisive God since he used words to separate in Genesis, uh, separate in Genesis 2. In John, since it was written in Greek and there are things similar to Greek mythology, such as in the Odyssey, when Odysseus had a scar to prove his identity, similar to when Jesus showed Thomas his scar, he believes John was writing under the influence of the Greeks, that John received his inspiration from them and was copying them. Three, a friend of mine doesn't know what God expects from people who were born with both sexual parts. He said, if they're intersex, can, if they are intersex, can they marry whomever they want? And four, finally, he goes on and confesses to a priest. I told him how we don't need a mediator, but he doesn't see the priest as a mediator, just someone to confess to. I've been re-listening to all your sermons on Romans, but if you have any advice on what to look out for, I would appreciate that. Well, let me just start, Janae, by saying that many times in the university campus, you'll meet professors who are liberal, they are unbelieving, so they want to undermine the student's confidence in the scriptures. And sadly, because so many young people are untaught, uh, they're easily swayed. You've been well-taught. You understand these issues. That's why you're just trying to figure out how to respond. Uh, This gentleman reminds me, this professor of 2 Peter 3.16, where there the apostle uh, Peter writes, um, Paul wrote a lot of things, he said, that are hard to understand. Um, And then he adds, which the untaught and the unstable distort, as they do also the rest of Scripture's to their own destruction. So there are unbelievers who read the scriptures who, I don't care if they have five PhDs after their name, because they are untaught by the Spirit of God, they are unstable, they end up distorting the, the what God has recorded in the Bible to their own destruction. Why is that? Because of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, 14. For a natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. So you're sitting under an unbelieving professor who's making these wild and crazy assumptions just because there's a Greek term that's used by John, and he says, well, he's copying, you know, this Greek author, or, you know, that's just absolutely wacko. Koine Greek was the language of the New Testament. Koine, of course, meaning common, so common Greek in the providence of God, became the international language of the day, much like uh, English is today. So you had the Roman peace that the Roman government brought. You had the Roman road system that went throughout the whole empire, and you had a common language. So as Paul says to the Church of Galatia, in the fullness of time, God uh, brought his Son into the world. And the timing was perfect just so that... um, the gospel might be spread and brought to uh, the various corners of the earth. Now, in reference to your intersex question, of course, the technical term is hermaphrodites. Hermaphrodites. So it's a 50-cent word. It means intersex. And you're talking about something that is so rare, so uh, obscure. And, of course, in the truest sense, a hermaphrodite or an intersex person is an infant born with both ovaries and testicles. And um, again, it's very, very rare, rare but um, due to, you know, we, we live in a fallen culture, sadly. We live in a culture where some of the problems that people have 
are because of um, intermarriaging, uh, intermarriage that has taken place too close with uh, relatives, and that in and of itself has created some uh, physical um, problems that people have. But there are tests that are done. Now specialists can perform ultrasound, blood tests, chromosome analysis, and even do exploratory surgery to find out the baby's true sex. And with that said, uh, you know, for someone, and this is, this is, again, what the unbelieving person in our day wants to do. They, they want to grab some obscure example and build a whole case around transgenderism or you can choose whatever sex you want to be. And, again, we're looking at something that is so rare and so unusual that um, to, to do that is, is just wrong, not to mention very often these problems can be solved and identified. Your next question, obviously you're dealing with a Roman Catholic who confesses to a priest. I would just say you don't need a mediator like a priest, uh, like they do in the Roman Catholic Church. And I did the same thing too when I was growing up. I was raised Roman Catholic, and every Saturday we went to confession. And if you missed confession, that was a big deal. And But you would go into the box, and the curtain would be closed, and the light would go on, letting someone know that there was someone in there, and he'd slide this little door open and very softly say, yes. And I would say, bless me, Father, for I have sinned. It has been two weeks since my last confession, and here are my sins. And then I would give my sins, whatever they were. But the concept of confession of sin to a priest is found absolutely nowhere in the Bible. First, the New Testament is very clear that there is not this hierarchical structure like you have in Roman Catholicism. In fact, when you think about priests, 1 Peter 2, I have a whole sermon on this, uh, teaches that we're all believer priests. In fact, I just taught the book of Revelation, in Revelation 1, again, Revelation 5, God describes his people as a kingdom of priests. So under the old covenant, under the old deal, People had to approach God through mediators. We were just studying John 3 recently with Moses and the brazen serpent. The people had been bit by poisonous snakes, so the people come to Moses and say, pray for us. And, of course, Moses, among other things, was a priest. In fact, he, he filled the office of both prophet and priest. And so you had this mediator. But now God says in Hebrews 4 that we can come to the throne of grace with boldness to find help in time of need. And he very clearly says in verses like 1 Timothy 2.5 that there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So you don't have to go to a priest to deal with your sin. In fact, the admonishment is to come to God. Who can forgive sin but God alone, the Pharisees asked. It was an excellent question. It was based on a text that given in the prophet Isaiah, and it was absolutely true. No one can forgive sin but God alone. Now, sometimes people take the verse in James 5, confess your sins to one another that you might be healed. But again, I have a whole sermon and message on this that the healing that he's describing of, descriptive of, is a person who is under the discipline of the elders of the church because they have been rebellious and they've committed some kind of open sin that has invited a sickness or an expression of God's discipline. 1 Corinthians eleven thirty. some of you are weak, some of you are sick, and some of you are asleep. You prematurely died uh, before the date that God would have ideally had you to have lived to. 
so again, he is dealing with someone who's under discipline, and so he calls for the elders of the church who ultimately uh, execute that church discipline that he might be restored. And again, I have a whole message on that. Roman Catholics love also to quote John twenty twenty three. So if you wanted a message on that, go to my series on the Gospel of John in addition to the Epistle of James. And so go to uh, John 20, and you'll see how it's broken up. I think I preached three or four sermons out of that chapter, and you want to go to the sermon that covers verse 23, where there it says, if you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Of course, our Roman Catholic friends claim that God gave the apostles the authority to forgive sins, uh, then they uh, hand, handed that authority down generation after generation through the successive popes, the cardinals that he appoints, the bishops that they appoint, the local parish priests. But that's not what it's talking about. It nowhere mentions the confession of sin. It no longer, nowhere even gives a hint that the apostles had that kind of authority. All it is saying very clearly is that as apostles, they can authoritatively declare whose sins are forgiven and whose sins are not based on what they do with the gospel. So this is the Great Commission. It's one of five places in the New Testament where the Great Commission is given. And again, even if you let Scripture interpret Scripture and you put all the Great Commission passages together quite clearly, and some happened on the same night in the same event— and you put them all together, it's very clear that we have no authority to forgive sin. But we can authoritatively say, if you receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior, your sins are forgiven. And that's what he told them to do. Read the end of Luke's gospel. Go and preach repentance and faith in Christ for the forgiveness of sins. First uh, John 1, 9, we're told to confess our sins to God, that if we confess our sins, he, God, is both faithful and righteous to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So you're on a college campus, you're at Clemson, it's liberal, uh, they love to attack Christianity, it once had a great reverence and respect for the things of God, they are very, very left-wing, uh, the president of Clemson uh, fought having even the U.S. Constitution taught on his campus, and they told their supporters, oh, no, we're not against it. And my son, who spent eight years working on it, and this year 20, 21,000 students in South Carolina are studying the Constitution because of his hard work. But through the Freedom of Information Act, he wrote for all the emails of the president of Clemson and these different high muckety-mucks and only to find out they were totally against even the Constitution being taught. It's very left-wing, I'm saying, both politically, religiously, and otherwise. So you can be a light there in the midst of darkness. And I appreciate you asking the questions. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, Elaine from Bluffton writes, Someone from your Buford Church said that you said no one will get saved during the seven years of the Tribulation. Because there will be those who will be martyred, I'm confused. Could you please clear this up? Well, obviously, whoever told you this is not really attending the church, because so they're kind of telling on themselves, because I've covered this over and over and over and over and over again. So no, we certainly will not, do not teach that, because the scripture does not teach it. What it does say, however, 
is that there is coming a time when the Antichrist will come on the scene. And of course, when Paul writes his second letter to the church at Thessalonica, some of the believers there thought, well, maybe they had misunderstood Paul, that the rapture takes place first, uh, that that kicks off the day of the Lord, but it appears because of this intense persecution that we must have misunderstood when the catching up is that we're in the rapture. And Paul says, no, you're, 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 that, you, that you're in the day of the Lord. He says, no, you're not in the day of the Lord. If you're in the day of the Lord, there would be certain things that would be in place, and they haven't obviously come. That's because you're not in the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord is not a single day. It's a period of time that mimics a biblical day, just as a biblical day starts at sunset and goes till sunset the next day. Uh, the day of the Lord starts in the dark shadows. They get blacker and blacker and blacker. It's black as midnight where trouble comes upon the earth, but eventually then the sun comes back up and it's bright and glorious, and then it gets dark again. And that biblical day, in one sense, is a prophetic picture of God's plan for the future. We're in the shadows, I believe, of the tribulation. The stage is being set, but it's not until after the church is removed that the birth pangs begin to unfold through the sealed trumpet in bold judgments, and things get really horrible. But then the S-O-N comes, as bright as the S-U-N, as the prophet Malachi echoes, and he rules and reigns for a thousand years. At the end of the thousand years, it gets dark again. So during the tribulation, the initial section of um, of the day of the Lord, Paul says this, Uh, Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? Uh, What things? That there's coming one who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Speaking of the Antichrist. And you know what restrains him now so that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Then that lawless one, one of the titles for the Antichrist, will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish. Why? Because they did not receive the love of the truth to be saved. So understand this. He's speaking of this coming man of sin, the Antichrist, which is the term that most of us know him by. And uh, John uses that term. And he is coming with all deception. uh, And he describes those who are going to perish. Why? Because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. So what I have mentioned is that people who have heard the gospel in clarity and power before the rapture, and they did nothing with it, and maybe they're of the mindset, well, you know, if all this stuff that these evangelicals have been saying actually happens and there's millions of them missing across the planet, I'll know they were right and I'll get right with God. No, if they won't get right in this favorable time, they certainly will not get right in the unfavorable time when you are executed for your faith. For this reason, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved, for this reason... God will send upon them, those who did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved, 
a deluding influence so that they might believe what is false in order that they may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. So what the Bible does say, again, is those who have heard the gospel and clarity and power, and only God can measure that, and they do nothing with it, that they will become recipients of a deluding influence from heaven. And in one sense, God does that even today. Uh, Jesus taught this truth in John chapter 12. He had done many, many kinds of miracles that pointed uh, to him being the promised Messiah, even the specialty miracles that only the Messiah would do. Obviously, there were others who did miracles, but uh, some that would be unique to the Christ. And so Jesus said to these Jews who had not responded, for a little while longer the light is among you. Walk while you have the light so that the darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. So Jesus is saying that when you hear the truth of the gospel, to do nothing with it is really to endanger yourself. You need to respond. You need to believe in the light so that you can be saved, so that you can become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke and went away and hid himself from them. But though they, he had performed so many signs, it's the Greek word samion. It's, it refers to an, uh, a, a, message, a miracle with a message and a testing symbol and a testing miracle that points to a truth. And so John very selectively I record seven miracles apart from the, uh, the resurrection and the things that follow, but seven miracles that were unique um, uh, to John's gospel. At least five of them, five of the seven were unique, and they are miracles with a message. But still, he had done many, many other miracles. In fact, he'll finish the book by saying there were many, many other miracles that Jesus did that, on, that I'm not even recording here. But what I have written is that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah and believing you might find life in his name. But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe. For Isaiah again says, he, referring to Yahweh God, has blinded their eyes. He, Yahweh, has hardened their hearts so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted, and I heal them, save them. So that's the situation. Because they would not believe, they could not believe. That's what Second Thessalonians is explaining, but in a much broader basis. Untold millions who will be a part of the apostasy. There's always been apostasy in the church. Second Peter chapter 2 echoes that truth, but there's coming the apostasy. It's articular. It's the apostasy of apostasies. And those people will not be saved. But is there salvation during the tribulation? Huh. The greatest revival possibly in all of human history takes place during the tribulation. Well, who's going to share the gospel if all the Christians are gone? The Jews, they're going to believe. They're, it's going to start with 144,000 Jewish men, Revelation 7, who are uh, taken out of the uh, 12 tribes of, of Israel, and they're going to preach the gospel. And because of their gospel witness, 
uh, it's unbelievable what happens. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, um, these are those, these who are clothed in the white robes, who are they and where did they come from? I said to him, my Lord, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. For this reason, they're before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple. And they're likened, by the way, to the sands of the seashore. After these things, after the preaching of the 144,000, again here in Revelation 7, I looked and behold a great multitude, which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes. I got a letter this morning from one of our missionaries, Dan Scribner. Uh, he is, works with the U.S. Center for World Missions, just reminding us that there are 7,400 unreached people groups in the world. When are they going to be reached? Right at this time, like never before. And that's what Jesus said in the Olivet Discourse. This gospel shall be preached to the whole world, and then the end shall come. It's going to be fulfilled during the time of the Great Tribulation. It doesn't remove our responsibility today, but it's going to happen through these 144,000, through the two witnesses in the Temple Mount, and through an angel of God himself. Great question. Let's go to the next. All right, we've got a live caller standing by. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, Carl and Rick. How you all doing? Hey, doing well. Doing well, my brother. What can we do to help you today? Um, I would like you to address the uh, William Branham cult. Uh, we have a friend, and we've been praying for him for some time, and I had a chance to speak to her today, and it was kind of frustrating. Uh, you know, she just wouldn't uh, listen, and my experience with witnessing lately seems to be that I'm, uh, if I don't say anything, of course, nothing gets done. If I say something, then, you know, it seems to go counter. So I, yeah. I'll uh, I'll uh, hang up and listen to you. I, I Googled the, the cult one time, and, and so I have a clue, but, uh, you know, I know it's not a good thing. So, interestingly, I think it was about 15 years ago, because I know we were still in our first building, and I had done the Bible line, and uh, we our studio was a stone's throw from here, and I came back into the building, and there were two young gentlemen waiting for me, because uh, Brandonism has been taught by a church in Beaufort County, so it's alive and well, and they were so ripped, because someone had called in and asked about William Branham. He died in the mid-60s. Um, he led a movement called the Latter Rain Movement, and his basic theology was that he had been called and chosen of God to restore the church to the true faith that the apostles had delivered. So this guy out of Kentucky, uh, like any uh, typical cult of sorts, uh, he um, adds to the Scripture he adds authority through his so-called ability to heal. Um, and again, people have uh, his attention. And Jesus, by the way, in the Olivet Discourse, warned against such things. Because after the church is raptured, though we have phony healings that go today, how do I know? Well, Jesus said we do. Um, in Matthew chapter 7, when he gives the uh, great sermon on the mount, he speaks in the end of those who preached in his name, 
who cast out demons in his name, who did miracles in his name. And he doesn't deny any of these as being true. Uh, These were true people that did such things. They identified with the Christian faith as William Branham did, and they did incredible things because an unbeliever can do all of these very things that Jesus describes. And then he'll say to them, I never knew you. I never had a relationship with you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And so he came with some kinds of healing, and people were convinced, well, because this experience happened or I witnessed it happening, it must be legitimate. And of course, after the rapture of the church, the Lord especially uh, warned against those who will come. Uh, He says, if anyone comes to you and says, behold, uh, here is the Messiah, or there he is, don't believe him, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Again, these are false teachers who are doing the miraculous, and this will be hugely accelerated after the church is raptured and the seven-year tribulation begins. Right off, you know he's on shaky ground because he's a oneness Pentecostal. So that should, like, immediately raise a red flag. What is oneness Pentecostalism? And again, not all Pentecostals are oneness Pentecostals. Um, Oneness Pentecostals deny the doctrine of the Trinity. And so they argue that God just comes in different modes. At times, the Father becomes the Son. The Son then maybe becomes the Father. The Father then becomes the Spirit. The Spirit becomes the Son. That God takes on different modes but they deny the truth that there is one God who exists in three co-equal, co-eternal persons. And so we don't worship three gods. We worship only one God who exists in three co-equal, co-eternal persons. Then he had this really weird doctrine called the serpent seed doctrine, uh, where he argues that Satan had sex with Eve. He taught annihilationism that hell is not a place of eternal retribution. Uh, He was part of the word faith movement, name it and claim it, kind of like Kenneth Copeland. I mean, I could go on and on and on and on and on. The guy was just a sheer heretic. And if someone even knew a little bit of Scripture. But you see, here's the thing is people want to put experience above the authority of Scripture. And that's what folks do, whether they're involved in a cult or sometimes even in a good church. They say, well, I had this experience, therefore it may be true. I just addressed this. A few weeks ago, you know, the guy who comes to church and says, well, I died once, Pastor, and, you know, and I, I met God, and everything was okay, and, you know, but then I came back into my body. No, you didn't die once and then come back to life. It's appointed for a man to die only once, and after that comes the judgment. Now, you might have had oxygen deprivation, and so you felt like maybe you had this dream, and maybe you did have some kind of a dream due to uh, oxygen being shortened in your body, Maybe your heart did stop, but that was not death. Death takes place, the Bible says in the book of James, when the spirit departs the body, and it does that just once. And then you meet the living God either for heaven or for Hades. So, again, he's just a heretic. He's a false teacher. Steer clear of him and all of his uh, heresies. Uh, We have someone waiting, so let's go to them. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, Alberto is on line one. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Well, good morning, gentlemen. My question is, 
I see a lot of preachers, you know, criticize other preachers for their teachings and every little, and they criticize for the person, the preacher or teacher on the, on YouTube videos I see. So they say, well, this guy's a heretic or this guy's not a heretic. Or how do you determine really was, was a heretic or false teachers, but yet because somebody wants to nitpick every little single thing a person, preacher says, who how do you determine based on scripture really to, to define really who's a heretic was a false teacher? Well, that's a that that's a great question, Alberto, and I appreciate you asking it. Um, certainly, sometimes there's unjust criticism that happens in the body of Christ. And the Lord, in His high priestly prayer, was not uh, arguing for ecumenicism as many are screaming for today. But he did pray that we would be one in order that the world may believe that you sent me. But those that he's praying for concerns the true church. And, of course, we must never forget that part of the field that God, where God has sown wheat, true legitimate seed that results in conversion, Jesus also taught in the kingdom parables that Satan comes along and he sows tares. And so there are certainly imitators outside the church, and there are imitators inside the church. So how do you tell the difference? Well, there's a whole book in the Bible that's dedicated to this very subject, and it's an unread book, but it's the book of Jude. If the book of Acts is the Acts of the Apostles, the book of Jude is the Acts of the Apostates. And so he looks at their doctrine, but he also very clearly reminds us that their character really sends a message that they have form without force, they have religion without reality. In Paul's words that we discussed last week, they have a form of godliness, but they've denied the power thereof, and therefore, he says, avoid such men. So God is not open for wholesale, unmitigated unity. He is only open to unity in the local church and amongst those that are truly born again. There are certainly secondary issues that Christians differ on. For instance, all Christians believe in the rapture. Whether they know it or not, they all believe in the rapture. Because the word rapture just means to be caught up. We shall all be caught up. Um, We'll be changed. This corruptible will put on the incorruptible. This mortal shall put on immortality. So if you believe that the church will be caught up and we will someday receive resurrection bodies and you believe in the rapture, you say, well, the word's not in the Bible. It's not in the English Bible. It's in the Latin Bible. It comes from Greek to Latin into English, and we get the word rapture. I don't care what you call it, the harpazo, the catching up. But what some Christians differ on is the timing of the rapture. Does it happen before the tribulation? Does it happen somewhere during the tribulation? Does it happen at the end of the tribulation? Uh, Some don't even think there's a tribulation, that that's already happened, but Jesus is coming back and Someday he'll just bring us all to heaven and then separate the wheat from uh, the wheat from the tares and the uh, sheep from the goat. Uh, with that said, there's some non-negotiable doctrines. There was a series of books done in the early part of the 20th century called The Fundamentals, and it was over the fundamentals of the faith. What are the non-negotiables? Because what was happening is some traditional historical seminaries that were known for raising up solid preachers to take the gospel to the states and to the world were beginning to vacillate on historical truths. And so Christians began to ask, well, we always used to link arms with this church down the street, 
and we did this, you know, mutual feeding of hungry people or we took care of folks at Christmas. Should we do it this year? Um, Because they seem to be drifting. And so they put out this series of booklets. I actually have one of the booklets. They were just done in a cheap paperback. You can buy them, you know, in a hard copy. But I have actually one of the originals that some businessmen, through an incredible expense, printed. And they said, what are the non-negotiables? And they listed such things like the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, Again, William Branham, that was the last question. He denies the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, He's a oneness Pentecostal. He teaches modalism. Um, know that he would be considered less than fundamental to the Christian faith. The the deity of Jesus Christ, non-negotiable, that Jesus is not simply a man, but that he is a God-man. So when the Mormons wanted to, uh, 20 years ago, there's a Mormon church right down the street from where I'm sitting today. They wanted me to do something with them concerning uh, being against pornography in the community. Well, I'm against pornography, but I wasn't going to do it with them because the link arms with them was to endorse them. So there is a time for, associ- for, for not associating. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, just read Second Thessalonians. There's a classic letter of some non-negotiables. Take notice of him. Don't associate with him. Paul says in Romans 16, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances. Why? Because typically that's what an unbeliever does, according to the book of Jude. They're without the Holy Spirit, so they cause divisions. Now, a carnal believer can do that as well, but typically that's what an unbeliever does. And so he says, those who uh, cause dissensions and hindrances, contrary to the teaching which you've learned, turn away from them. So the Bible does teach biblical separation, and not again on these secondary issues, um, but on primary issues like the deity of Christ, like the substitutionary atonement, like the bodily resurrection. There's a church in Hilton Head, and the guy gave an Easter sermon that, yeah, Jesus is raised from the dead, but he was using a different dictionary as to what he meant by that. Same terms, different dictionary. Oh, he's raised in our hearts. He's, he's, but not that he literally, physically, bodily came out of the tomb. Uh, we have two Baptist churches in our town. They're cooperative Baptists. They deny biblical infallibility. Now, they are very clever because this is what cooperative Baptists are now doing because they don't want to lose anybody, and they'll say, well, we believe in the inerrancy of the Bible. They just have a different definition of inerrancy. They mean something totally different from the historical understanding of verbal plenary inspiration. So there are, uh, there's a, a line to be drawn on the sand on some critical issues. That's just a few. Let's go to the next question. I think we have somebody waiting. No, actually, they um, fell off the line there. We okay. did uh, have somebody that's called in and uh, dictated their question, and here it is. Uh, this caller would like you to explain Matthew eleven three. Did John have second thoughts about who Christ was? Well, it's a good question because what John could not put together in his thinking at this point is the truth that the Messiah's ministry would not unfold how he thought it would unfold. He thought, well, Messiah will come. He's going to die. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He preached that. Uh, So he understood the substitutionary death of the Messiah, uh, that this was the literal Son of God, God in human flesh, the one whose sandal he was not even worthy to, you know, untie. But there's also, in many times in the Old Testament, in a single verse of Scripture, you have both comings of Christ described. For instance, uh, to give you an example, 
the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, Isaiah writes, because the Lord has anointed me. By the way, this is, in, this is a messianic passage. Even Jews recognize this is a passage that speaks of the Messiah. Behold, the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. Now, that's an interesting prophetic statement here in Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, because in many respects, it describes both comings of the Messiah. He is going to set the captive free through a substitutionary atonement, but it also says here that he is going to bring about the vengeance of our God. Jesus didn't do that. Uh, Isaiah says a baby's going to be born to us, and then he's going to say, well, the governments will rest on his shoulders. Well, when Jesus walked on the earth, the governments of this world did not rest on his shoulder. Rest on his shoulders; they seemed to be over him. They crucified him under Pilate's command. So, what's important and what John didn't fully capture in his mind: he's in prison. Look, the Messiah is going to come. He's going to die, but he's also going to rule and reign. And what John was unable to do was to put it all together yet that the Messiah's coming would unfold in two parts. And part of that was because God in his providence knew technically how the Jews would respond. Technically, if he came to his own and his own received him, they would have made him king. They would have seen him as a revolutionary. He would have been dead, buried, raised from the dead. And then he would have ruled and reigned for a thousand years. But that's not how it happened. And so that's what Matthew 13 is describing, the kingdom principles, because of the unbelief of the Jewish leaders who pretty much typified the nation. Um, Because of their unbelief, uh, he is left for a period of time, but he is coming again. So the second aspect where Messiah rules with a rod of iron, John just didn't understand that they were going to be separated because, you know, again, he's beheaded. His ministry is like a meteor flying through the sky. It's very short and doesn't even live to see it all unfold because he gets his head cut off. And so, look, if if you're the Messiah, I don't quite get it. Why am I in prison? And the Lord just says, hey, look, go back and tell them this, 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 and this has happened. Uh, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached to them, and he's reminding them specifically of some miracles that were absolutely unique to the Christ, to the Messiah. And uh, so John was not in unbelief, and there's a difference between unbelief and not understanding. John just didn't understand, and that's where he was. Good question. Let's that go to the next one. Caller also had another question. Uh, would like to know if repentance is necessary to be saved. Well, it is. Jesus said, unless you repent, you perish. Um, And so when Peter is asked, brethren, what must we do? Uh, They are delivered this incredibly convicting sermon where the Bible says they are pierced to the heart. He says, repent. When Paul is asked by the Philippian jailer, what must I do to be saved? His answer is believe. And so to repent is to believe. They're the flip side of the same coin. What are you believing in Christ for? For the forgiveness of sin. 
And so unless a person is willing to say that sin is sin, that it's wrong, that it's evil, and that God needs to change it, he's not talking about you cleaning up your act. You can't, the one who sins becomes a slave to sin. You don't clean up your act so that you can come to Christ, but you come to Christ so that he can change you. But you can't do that if you're not willing to admit sin is sin. So if you're living with your girlfriend, as someone I dealt with recently, and he says, well, I'm born again, but you know, God understands. He knows we love each other, and we've been living with each other for five years, and we're not married. Well, you see, he's not really willing to call fornication sin. And so in the truest sense, he does not see his need for a savior. And so Jesus told them, we already referenced this earlier with the very first caller that came. Uh, He opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ, the Messiah, would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day. And that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. So when you believe, if you truly believe, you are coming to Christ, trusting in his death, burial, and resurrection to forgive you and to change you. But if you're not willing to call your sin, sin, then you haven't really come in faith. So it's totally legitimate to give a gospel presentation without even containing the word repent in it. You say, is that possible? Well, think about the gospel of John. The Gospel of John is actually the only book in the New Testament by which we are told exclusively that it's written for people's conversions. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written. Why? So that, here's the reason, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. In other words, John is saying one of the specific reasons I am writing this book is for the conversion of sinners, and then having been conversion, being converted, that they can find this new life, that they can grow in it. Does the word repent, is it contained in the Gospel of John? Not once. And yet the Gospel of John is one of the most evangelistic books in all the New Testament, where many different kinds of encounters, like Nicodemus, I preached on just a few weeks ago, quoting the most quoted verse in all the Bible, uh, John 3.16. But remember, John 3.16 is in the context of John 3.14 and 15. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes may in him have eternal life. Those Jews in the desert had to make a willful, volitional decision that they had rebelled against God, that their rebellion was worthy of judgment. So they had to change their mind, and that's what the Greek verb metaneo, repent, means. It means to change your mind. You have to change your mind. In Acts 2, you said he was only a man. He's God in human flesh. Change your mind. He's Lord. Anyway, uh, I hope that helps, and uh, thanks for joining us today. A lot of questions we didn't get to, but God willing, there'll be another Tuesday. Walk with Christ. Thank you.